This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Jamie Attenberg, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. You have written your first memoir. I came all this way to meet you, writing myself home. Where did this book come from? I had written seven books in 14 years, and I don't think I've exhausted the form. I was interested in trying a different genre. I had no interest up until the point that I decided I wanted to write a memoir, to write a memoir. It always sounded like the scariest thing in the world and that it would be really complicated in so many ways to do it. And then all of a sudden, as it sometimes works with these things, it just made perfect sense to do it. I thought about it before the pandemic. I wrote it during the pandemic, but I actually sold it mere months before the pandemic. So I was like, well, I guess I know what I'm doing <laughs> for the next year of my life. There were some stories I wanted to tell about my life that didn't fit into a neat box, right? Like I've written a lot for magazines and newspapers, these 800 word essays, these 1200 word essays. I haven't written for modern love, but if you think about a modern love, that's kind of the classic example of it has a specific arc that they want. Or I've written a letter of recommendation for New York Times Magazine. Also, it has to fit into a specific kind of box in a way. And I wanted to go longer and deeper and richer. And I and I wanted to explore things. I think when you write for those kinds of publications also, you have to choose a point of view and choose a specific angle. And I had more, I think I had to say about my life than that. There is some previously published material, but I've actually reconfigured a lot of it in this book. And I just turned 50 and I was looking back at my life and was able to have a good perspective, a wiser perspective, a more rational perspective. I think sometimes we write things in the moment and they mean one thing as they happen. And then, and as we learn more, they can take on different meanings. So there was just a lot to, to work with in my past and I was ready to talk about it. The title is really great. I came all this way to meet you, writing myself home. Where does that come from? It came from a line in the book. I actually have had four titles for this book. Mm -hmm. And each time I chose a title, the book changed. And each title was, I think, a different chapter or a line from the book. And none of them were quite right. And the line in the book comes from a moment near the end where I'm walking through an ossuary in Naples. And I'm sort of saying hello to the ghosts that are there. There's a lot of ghosts in this book. And there's I do a lot of travel around the world where I go to cemeteries and ossuaries and catacombs and that kind of thing. That's one of the threads of the book. And it has become definitely a habit of mine when I go into these kinds of spaces to have a moment where I honor whoever is there. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think they sort of deserve it. I don't want to mess with anyone. <laughs> also... <laughs> Ghosts and home seem to be the two big markers for you in this book. I do love the way that you write about this connection you have with ossuaries and, and cemeteries and the fact that you're not, well, you're really not afraid of death, it sounds like. Oh my gosh. I've been thinking about it so much lately, actually, because a friend's friend just passed away and he was, he was talking about it online and he said that his friend didn't fear death fear death. He was, had been sick for a long time. And that was one of the conversations they had was mm -hmm. that he wasn't afraid of death. And I, I, I definitely would like to know what's on the other side. <laughs> I'd like a little more information if I could have it, but I don't think there's anything you can do about it. And especially it's turning 50 and this sounds really hippy dippy. So I apologize. You know, there's moments in my life where things happen and I sort of have a visual that's in my mind and it sort of marks a moment. And so I recently had this moment where 
I had an hourglass visual in my head and it just turned the other way. So like, I have this idea that I, I don't know how old you are, that it doesn't matter, but it's like this idea that like, now you're approaching the second half of your life and that it's not a downward slope. It doesn't mean it in a negative way, but I just have actually this sense of urgency that I need to fill it with as many good things as I can, not in a stressful way, but just like, all right, like, what are you going to do with, with the rest of it? So I don't want to die. I'd like to live a nice, long, healthy life, but I think the focus is not supposed to be on death when you're alive. I think the focus is supposed to be on how you're living your life. So I don't fear it because I'm interested in it and I'm interested in history and I'm interested in honoring the people that came before us. And I, especially living in New Orleans, which is such a haunted place and and so, so many conversations which I don't really talk about too much in the book, but so many conversations about, you know, who had the land, who came before us and the, the land in this country and all over the world. I think about it and I like to honor it, but I also want to live. <laughs> but you have a point early in the book where you talk about being the daughter of a motherless mother. And you have a really great way of describing this. This sounds more dramatic than it actually is, though I suppose it had a gothic romantic quality to me when I was a child. It was sad that my mother's mother had died so young, but it was also a mystery and mysteries were interesting. You are very clear from the start that you were your own kind of kid and you were really aware of the world around you. I mean, I don't think you could have become anything but a writer, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) It's really true. I was writing even... Like, I think I was writing my first stories when I was four or five years old or something like that. And I was really occupied with storytelling even then. It just is. And I talk a, a little bit about it in the book, too, that it's just the thing that makes me so happy. And it's the thing that fills me up. I'm sure you talk to so many writers, they probably all say the same thing, which is that it's just kind of a safe place to be. In varying ways. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, though, that's so great about the memoir is how you talk about your family. And you come from a long line of salespeople, which I love. And you're trying to figure out like why your dad is the way he is and how you pulled this up. But also your your grandmother, your mother's mother was apparently a really great letter writer. And you were like, did I get this from her? Is this where it comes from? Like trying to slot in those different pieces. It's true. I have a deep fascination about where I came from, but I only need a tiny little bit to fulfill me. I don't need the long history of three generations back. I had a novelist or anything like that. I like the idea of there just being, just being a letter writer. I like the idea of when I go out and speak to the world that I know that I come from this family of salespeople. I don't like things to be precious or exclusive or even necessarily refined or anything like that at all. You know, I, I like that it's for everyone, right? Like I like that being a writer can mean so many things too. And being a storyteller can be so many things. I think that when people feel like there's a wall up or that it's something so special or that it's inaccessible and then makes them afraid to say that they're a writer or that they want to write. I think writing is such a, a valuable gift and opportunity for so many people that even if you don't end up writing books, just the act of sitting down and writing, I just want it to feel like available if that makes sense and not, and just no snobbery around it at all. And you're wrestling with ghosts in a couple of different ways, because I mean, there's the physical manifestation of the idea of a ghost, right? Whether it's an ossuary or a cemetery, or you have an experience with a ghost in a creepy inn in New England. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But also the flip side of that is home. Ghosts can't leave their home. They don't want to leave their home. They can't leave their home. If you look at the lore of ghosts, right? You lived in how many apartments when you were here in New York? There was a crazy, it was like 26 apartments in seven months or something. No, it was when I was 
actually right before I turned 40 okay. and I was really broke and it was right before my fourth book came out and I was really struggling as many creative people do, no matter what kind of path you're choosing. And I, I ended up hitting the road because I couldn't afford to live in New York anymore. Okay. So I sublet my apartment and I crashed at people's houses. I did live somewhat in sometimes in New York and then all, and then really all over America. I had before I have traveled a lot, but it was something that like that was happening during that year. And I was like, Oh man, I'm 40. This is not cute. <laughs> it maybe was never cute, but it was definitely not cute that year, but it was, I didn't really have any choice in the matter. I didn't have any money coming in except for subletting this place, that kind of thing. And, but I also just knew that I believed in myself as a writer and that hopefully it would come to fruition in some way. I never had any idea that I would make a lot of money as a writer. I didn't know what success as a writer meant because it felt, again, inaccessible, except for like this kind of higher tier of people. But I knew that it was the thing that I loved best. And so crashing on some couches felt like a fair trade. Although wearing, I'm not going to lie, it was wearing that year. <laughs> but uh, my back might have suffered because of it. Yeah, it was like a big turning point. But you know, you never know when it's a turning point. And that's why writing about it in the moment is different than writing about it later on. I wrote an essay about it that year. And then I used some of it in the book. But I had a different perspective when I was looking back on it. I saw a different version of myself. And I saw different lessons that I learned from it. It was a, a fascinating experience to write this book. Are you kinder to yourself now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And kinder to other people. I give everybody gets way more slack, but I was hungry and I was ambitious and I didn't know how to make things work. I didn't know how to succeed. And I probably drank a lot more than I do now and was just a kind of, kind of a wilder person. And I was still in the process of trying to find my voice and nail it, really understand it. But I just think everybody always is trying to find their voice. And I can say now at the age of 50, oh, I feel like I know who I am and where I'm at. But, but in 10 years from now, I'm sure I'll say it's evolved again. You know, I mean, I've always been a writer. I've always had a sense of self, but I would never want to stay exactly the same. I would always want to be evolving. Have you found home now, though? You've been in New Orleans for how long? Six years. Okay, so six years. Do you feel settled there in a way that you haven't before? Yes, I feel much happier here. Okay. I feel much more stable. I bought a small house. I prefer the weather here, which actually is crucial to my mood. I have a nice group of friends here, but I still have a lot of friends everywhere. So I have like a great network. I feel connected to this city, but I feel connected to America, but I feel connected to the world. Do you know what I mean? It's like all of those things can exist within you. I feel occupied with this city. It's a really interesting place to live. I worry it's going to sink. It will <laughs> eventually sink. I have an understanding of what my job is in a way that 10 years ago I didn't. Like wanting to be a writer and writing and, and freelancing and pulling things together here and there, that was work, but it wasn't necessarily my job. And now I feel like I'm going to write a book every couple of years and I have some systems in place. Doesn't mean that it can't go away tomorrow, but I feel like right now I know I'm employed as a writer in a really specific kind of way. But the Middlesteens was sort of your breakout book, if I remember correctly, right? That was your first big bestseller. You had a blurb yeah. from Franzen. Yeah. That book changed your trajectory too, because before that you'd been marketed sort of solely as women's fiction. It's true. I didn't feel like I was 
solely women's fiction, but that was the case. I mean, that was the covers were not great. And I felt like I was a little bit wilder and scrappier and dirtier than than contemporary women's fiction as it was described at that time, right? So this was 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And then it did, you know, it is interesting that it took like a blurb from a man. He is Branson. I think I was one of the last few blurbs that he ever gave. He doesn't blurb really at all anymore. But um, it was an important blurb, not just here, but in Europe too. Like it, it actually like helped me to sell the book all over Europe. And I'd never broken that market before. You know, he's just wildly revered everywhere all over the world. So I think that that was part of the case was getting this blurb from him. I know him a little bit and he's an incredible reader. He loves it. So it was really an honor to get that blurb from him. So you follow up the middle stains with St. Maisie, which becomes an oral history of a real life character, actually, this woman who lived in New York. And originally you decided that you were going to write this book as her sort of memoir. And then you realize, oh, no, that's not going to work. So it's multiple voices. And you've done these books back to back. The middle stains is a sort of quietly epic suburban family story, right? And then you follow it up with this big, bouncy New York historical. I mean, Joseph Mitchell was, I think, the first person to have written about Maisie. And you were like, okay, so I've seen this essay. Mm -hmm. And it was in The New Yorker in, what, 1940, something like that. And then you turned it into something bigger. So you've got these two books back to back. And I think that's the moment when everyone was kind of like, oh, right, Jamie Attenberg, what's she going to do next? (laughs) But you write about this really interesting... In the memoir, and I'm trying to figure out if it's the Middlesteins or St. Maisie, where another writer reaches out to you and says, how do you do this? Show me the math of how you create these worlds. And you're just kind of like, well, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Right, right, right. There is a writer that I talk about in the book, but there's, in some ways, she's a composite. I would imagine this happens to you sometimes where people just say, can I sit down with you and pick your brain? As I say in the book, it's like you're a salad, but they only want to pick the good part, you know, the chunks of cheese out of your brain or whatever it is. So I was always doing the work, right? I was always sitting down and just doing it and trying to figure it out. It was kind of weird that, Yeah, it's really not how it works. I'm not so savvy a person to be able to sit down and go, this book is going to make a lot of money or this book is going to get good reviews or anything like that. All I know how to do is write the thing that interests me most. So writing about St. Maisie was this real life person spoke to me and the fact that I couldn't find out any information about, about her besides the Joseph Mitchell essay that appeared in The New Yorker and in Up in the Old Hotel, which was also a grand inspiration for the book. Because I couldn't find any information about her, it gave me this freedom to just invent, right? To tell that story. And I really hooked into it. And I liked the idea that I could create different forms and structures and that it was an epistolary novel and there's like this playfulness to it. And, and it was a great place, you know, to attach my brain. It was a problem for my brain to solve. And I could never in a million of years have said, this is how this is going to do well, or people are going to like it for this reason. I don't think you can do that in the first draft. I don't think you can sit down and say, here's why it will sell. All you can do is write the book that you're dying to write you know, clawing its way out of you. And then in edits and conversations with people and, and the publisher takes over, they can figure out a way to market it. They can figure out a way to talk about it. But in terms of making that art, you had just have to tell the story that's inside of you. And that's, that's it. That's the best that you can do. And so when I met this writer who wanted to know, you know, what the math of it was, why this book worked over any other book or anything like that, it's just because it's the story I had to tell within me. And it, and also I talk about this a little bit in the book that it came out of a lot of struggle. It came out of like a really tough year or two in my life. And so sometimes we look at our successes and we can celebrate them and they, they feel like a triumph and you can see all the goodness that comes out of it. And sometimes we look at our successes and all we can see is kind of the pain that went into it and, and how hard it was. I mean, there's a celebration 
to come out of that too. It's not so easy breezy <laughs> to sit down and write a book that is going to connect with a reader. And also, I just want to say that like sometimes a book doesn't connect with a reader right away. And then 10 years later, it could come back and it can mean something to someone. Sometimes I meet people and they, they're reading books that I wrote years ago. For whatever reason, they found it on a stoop or in their library, or they've read one of my books and then they decided to go and read all of my books. They age differently and they have different meaning and you can't control it. You can't plan it. You can't figure out why one book would be more successful over another book. None of that is predictable. I'm sure you see that. You can make some predictions, right? But there's all these surprises. I'm still so invested in it. I'm fascinated with this industry. I'm fascinated not just with the writing of it, but I'm fascinated with how other people feel about books, how people sell books, how people talk about books, how you hear about books. I think that's why I'm interested in the internet and how things move that way. I mean, I think I get recommendations on the internet from the internet more than anywhere else, you know, or my friends' books or things like that. But I find all of that so deeply fascinating, but also completely unpredictable. You can build community, though, out of that lack of predictability. I mean, it's exactly as you described. Like, sometimes you get recommendations. Sometimes you think, huh. I mean, actually, you sent me back into the depths of my bookcase at home looking for my copy of Mrs. Bridge because you've just read it this year and I haven't read it in years. And I'm like, oh, I should really make time for that. And I read the first page and I was like, yes, I missed this book. And it was written in 1959 by a dude. It's like reading Revolutionary Road, that Richard Mm -hmm. Yates novel. It's like, oh, this feels like it was last week. And there are these books and there are these moments where it's kind of like, oh, right, right. I've missed you. It's so cool. And I found out about that book because I'm in a book club. Mm -hmm. I've heard about that book forever and ever. In fact, Meg Walter had recommended that book to me three times. And I, for whatever reason, hadn't just hadn't picked it up. I'm in a book club with Maria Semple. And so that was one of the, one of the books. And it was like, it's my favorite book that we've read this year. I think it's just so perfect structurally. I was just talking about this the other day. It kind of reminds me of Lydia Davis in a way. Yes. Because every chapter is so short. It's just like a challenge. You know, it's not like a numbers kind of thing. It's just more like it's so calculated and precise. It's not just the writers that you have become part of the community with in New Orleans or around the world. I mean, you are constantly on the internet. You've been a bookseller here in Brooklyn. I mean, that's (laughs) bookselling is a community. What did you learn while you were selling books? I was bookselling at a really crucial point in my life where I had put out a couple of books and they hadn't done very well. And so it was really restorative for me to go and work in that bookstore. It was in Greenpoint in Brooklyn and Greenpoint wasn't quite yet Greenpoint. I mean, it was a, definitely it was 10 years ago that I was there. So it was definitely a few years out from being kind of overwhelmed. I haven't been there in a while, but I feel like it's a little built up probably now at this point. And it was just like local people walking into a bookstore, looking for recommendations, loving to be hand sold to. I loved hand selling, dusting the shelves and talking to people. And I just remember that people just really liked books and like to read and just wanted companionship with a good book. And that was a period of time when I was writing The Middlesteins. It was very warming kind of feeling. I'm so happy we can go back into bookstores again now <laughs> and connect with them, even if we're in masks and it's not quite the ideal experience that we you know, loved for so long. Even when I was a little kid, I used to go to this used bookstore. I remember that was probably about four or five blocks away from my house and all the books were a quarter. Gosh, I sound old timey. <laughs> they were all like a quarter. And I, I read this Joyce Carol Oates book. 
I remember I bought it because I was so excited to see a short story collection by a woman on the shelves. I mean, this would have been like, you know, in the early 80s, probably. I mean, I can visualize buying that book and taking home and being so excited and not really quite getting everything that was going on in it because it was written at a more adult level, but just feeling like really inspired. I don't know. I think bookstores are, are really magical places. And not to be too idealistic about it, but I really think that they're so important. They're cornerstones to communities and they are treasures and we, we need to keep them alive. I also always encourage writers who are starting out to be booksellers if they can. It's not just enough to read everything you can get your hands on, but be a bookseller for a little bit. Even if it's part-time, even if it's just for a couple of years, go be a bookseller for a bit because that will change how you see the actual physical book itself as well as the ideas. I fall in love with ideas all the time. And then the execution may or may not leave me cold. I read I Came All This Way to Meet You in a single sitting. I mean, how close (laughs) is this to you as who you are? It's weird because some people are calling it an essay collection. Some people Mm -hmm. are saying it's a memoir. And it's kind of, I just think of it as a a book of stories that I have to tell. I think it's pretty close to me, but there's so much I left out. Like I wrote 90,000 words of this book and it's it's 72,000. So there's 20,000 words that are like, probably even like deeper, darker secrets than the ones that are in in this. This is a very much a warts and all kind of book. I approached it with a novelistic attitude. I think one of the challenges was taking all the skills that I had learned as a fiction writer and applying it to a nonfiction project, not meaning like, how do I fictionalize this, but meaning like, how do I use these bigger storytelling skills? It's a weird thing to treat yourself as a character. It is me, for sure. There isn't anything in here that I don't believe. There aren't any lies in this book. There are like characters that I like altered a couple of little details to protect their identity, that kind of thing. But the emotional truths are all there. I think it's me. I hope it's me. I believe it to be true. I can't read it again. I haven't been able to pick it up at all. I don't, it would be hard for me to give like a long reading from it because it feels so vulnerable. I'm hoping like a year from now, I'll be able to engage with it in a different way. I do want to go back to this idea of safety, though. You've mentioned it a couple of times, and you certainly talk about it throughout the book. At one point, you're on tour. You've taken eight dresses. You're writing specifically about these dresses and what's happening on tour. But you also say, I mistake control of my outward appearance as architecture for my soul. Like You're really struggling with who you are and where you are in the world. And it's a lot of outside stuff, but then you have a level of anxiety that makes it much harder for you to function doing what you want to do to promote your books. I had to reschedule my therapy session. I was supposed to have therapy right now. (laughs) No, but it's okay. I think it's really funny. I still have anxiety issues, but have learned how to manage it a little bit better, especially in the last year or two. But I didn't know, sometimes you don't know that's what was wrong with you. And I was somebody who was so public facing for such a long period of time and things sort of started to add up in my life. You know, I always think of it as kind of like these little, these little cuts and bruises and scars and they, they just keep building up. And so even if you're not really feeling like the actual anxiety in the moment, you might be feeling like the anxiety from like two book tours ago or something like that. I am an online person, but I'm pretty good now about like managing my time online and what parts of myself I'm presenting online to. All of these things I've had to learn. I think this part of what makes me a happier person now has been like reevaluating my relationship with it. It is really true, like to be able to be thoughtful about my relationship with my anxiety and my public self and my online self. It's just been really helpful for me to establish rules and boundaries for myself so that I can be the best version of myself. 
It also seems to me that there are a lot of folks online who feel like when they have a favorite writer and if their writer lives online in a certain way, they feel like they know that person very intimately when in fact they know an online version. The online version of me is like, I'm going to talk about my dog and I'm going to talk about books. I'm going to talk about food probably Mm -hmm. too. And there's plenty of things that I don't talk about. There are so many things that happened this year and last year that I don't mention because it's not anybody's business. And also I've made a decision. I, I believe to be mostly positive online because there is so much negativity online. So what do I want to get out of being there? Like if you're going to spend time in this place, people spend hours and hours and hours. I look at my, you know, end of week, little notification, how much time I spent online. I'm like, damn, I spent a lot of time online this week. Part of it is because it's my job and I'm on the screen anyway, because I'll be writing. But part of it is because I like it and I have friendships and, and I want to be entertaining. And one of the really positive things you have put out there is a project called Hashtag Thousand Words of Summer. And you also have a newsletter called Craft Talk. And you're helping writers at the start of their careers or writers who have not yet been published, however we want to describe them, find their footing. And you may actually have some folks who are following you who are, in fact, published writers. I'm not entirely sure what that breakdown looks like. But you have been able to build this community. It's pretty great. It's cool. An accident, all of it. I think mm-hmm. if I tried to do it, it would never have succeeded. You know, it's got to be organic. This next year will be the fifth year of mm-hmm. A Thousand Words of Summer. It's something that I started with a friend of mine, just a conversation we were having about wanting to write a thousand words a day, which is generally what I do do when I'm working on a book as I write. That's a good goal for the day for me personally. And I just tweeted that I was going to do two weeks with a friend and all these people said, oh, I want to do it too. And then I said, all right, I'll do a little newsletter and 200 people signed up and then 2000 people signed up. And that's, it just sort of kept building year after year. Once a year, I was just doing a thousand words a summer and I saw it build, but I didn't have the regular newsletter, the craft talk newsletter, which is once a week now until last year. So it's been about a year that I was doing it. And essentially what it came out of was that I was teaching, I would get hired to do workshops and it was 12 people who could afford me, or I would fly somewhere and give a talk. And it was a hundred people who could afford the tickets or whatever. And it was, it felt like I, again, just to return to the beginning of the conversation, like, I don't feel like it should be inaccessible to people. I don't, I don't feel like people should feel intimidated or shy or scared because it is so joyful. It's such a joyful act. So last summer, not summer 2021, summer 2020, particularly because it was in many ways, really toxic environment online that summer. There were a lot of good things that were happening and there were a lot of really extreme bad things that were happening to online. I had to sit down and and reevaluate what I was doing with my time and most be of service. And I just thought if I do this newsletter, if I just write about what I know about writing, I think it would be helpful to people and it would make them feel less alone. And I don't know if I always get the answers right or if I'm saying the right thing, but I'm just trying to say you can and you should and and you should connect with other people if you can. Or I have felt alone so much in my life. I write about this a lot in the book. I have felt alone so much in my life and I don't think we need to be. So it's just an email anyway. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was helping in some way. And wanted, I don't know, I just wanted to help a little bit. So, but I have some success stories from it, like some people who've gotten book deals, which is really great. And or gotten agents. Anyone can do it though. Anybody can sit down and write a book. So, but if this is just one little thing that helps them, that's nice. 
you do write about being alone. You also write about the difference between loneliness and solitude. And I think that's something a lot of us have had to learn in the last couple of years, that there is a significant difference between being lonely and being physically apart, that they're not necessarily synonymous. They don't carry equal weight in some cases. Right. Yeah. And it depends on what you want to get out of it and, and what kind of tone you want to put on it. Solitude seems necessary if you're going to write and in many cases make your art. And I've always been an alone kid writing those little stories in my head. And I didn't actually have a lot of friendships in my life, mostly until I was an adult. I had some friendships in high school. Really, when I became a writer is when I found the, a lot of the friendships that are most important to me in my life and have really stuck with me. But loneliness, it can be alluring. If you feel like feeling bad sometimes, then loneliness can feel good. Like there's something that is, I don't want to say sexy because that's not the right word, but alluring to loneliness. I really think that there are people who take comfort in feeling that way and feeling the sadness. There is an artistic connection, I think, to the sadness, but I always have to make sure that I don't go too far in that direction. I'll tell you a little story. This has nothing to do with the book, but we had a hurricane here and nobody knew how bad it was going to be, Hurricane Ida. And I was alone in my house with my dog. And at some point the power goes out and it's windy. And next door, there's like an office and they didn't close the shutters. So you could hear them banging all night. And then all of a sudden they like, you know, they're flying off. And so you all it is just sitting in the darkness with a candle with my dog. And I thought I'm alone. It was a really deep moment, but also the next day I was alive. So we can survive that. We can survive that aloneness. Is that the biggest lesson you've taken from your work? that we can survive aloneness, that we can survive our feelings. Your characters go through a lot too. Not just you in, in this memoir, but your characters go through a lot. Yeah, I kind of put them through with their paces, don't I, sometimes? <laughs> well, you can't just have them be happy. What kind of book is that? Nobody wants to read that book. And life is full of all of these struggles that, you know, it's what you do do with them, right? That defines your character. Life is very hard and I see like a lot of sadness. But like I said, I'm trying to find the light. I'm always I'm always writing towards the light. I think there's a lot in this book, too, that people will be surprised by. This interview is going to air right during your pub week. So we're going to let folks really dig in and see what's going on. But one of the joys of this book, too, is that you just drop little bits about writing as we're kind of going along. And so I think for anyone who is thinking, oh, it's January, I'm going to sit down and really write that book. They need your book. (laughs) 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 This would be a really good time if you're saying one of your resolutions or whatever you call your thing for the new year, this would be a good place to start. Can we talk about some of your literary inspirations though? You know, I read a lot of poetry Mm -hmm. and I I talk a little bit about poetry in this book too. I reference a lot of poets along the way. One of the most exciting things about writing this book was that there were no rules at all to writing it. And I just kept thinking, oh, I like this writer. Can I talk about them? And the answer is yes, I can talk about them. I can talk about whatever I want. I really like to read a lot of contemporary poetry. I talk about Morgan Parker's work in this book. I find her just very necessary. I think I've read everything that she's written and she has a memoir that's going to come out. And, you know, she's younger than me. (laughs) But I'm I'm very inspired by her. Reading Grace Paley was really important to me just because it's really all about the voice with her. And there's sort of this like grinding and emotional and hilarious authenticity to her characters that I find very freeing. And I felt like she was always making her own rules. I'm really interested in people who are making their own rules. You know what I read this year that I really loved was Katie Kitamura's book. She's one of the few writers that I actually reach out to them and say, will you please give me your galley once I hear, like, I want to know what she's doing. 
Yeah, this is the new one, Intimacies, that we're talking oh, about. It's so good. Love this book. It's yes. really good. Yeah. You know, or Lauren Groff is like another writer. Like we're friends, but I definitely read a lot of women. I am reading um, Melissa Phoebus's new book, The uh, Body Work, the craft book about sexuality and writing about the body that I think is really great. I really do think Grace Bailey was like probably really important for me. And, you know, for a long time, it was like Raymond Carver's short stories. I was a short story writer first. I, I loved all the short story writers. Anything that's like first person, I, I really love. I just reread The Bell Jar again. It's an amazing book. Why'd you pick up The Bell Jar again? I mean, why not? But My book club. Okay. <laughs> well, I've never had a book club that I actually ever wanted to be in before because I have, you know, so many books that I have to read for myself. But everyone in this book club is so smart and I'm interested in what they have to say. But I've been bad. I haven't been able to do it lately. And they just say, read these things that I never would read. I trust them to force me to do something. Do you have a favorite moment from I Came All This Way to Meet You? Oh my gosh. Okay. Let me think about it. You know, I love the first few pages of it a lot. I fiddled around with that for a really long time where it just talks about all the jobs that I've ever had in my life. There's a chapter called the Bone Chapel, which is one of, one of the reasons why I wrote the book because I really love that chapter where I go to a Bone Chapel in Avora, Portugal with an ex-boyfriend of mine and just have a, you know, a really emotional moment, an emotional trip in a really beautiful and compelling space that made me feel really complete. Um, as a person. So I love that chapter a lot. I don't know. I love that I got, got to go to all these places. Like that's the thing about it. When I was writing it, I was like, oh yeah. And I went there and I went to, you know, I went to Italy and I went to Hong Kong and I got to be this person out in the world and writing it during the pandemic where I wasn't able to be that person anymore. It, that was the perfect time for me to write it and re reflect on me out there when it was just me at home. And then writing about home too, it was the right time to do it and to recognize why I valued where I was and where I had arrived in my life. What did writing this book teach you? It taught me that I like myself more than I used to. <laughs> it taught me that I have accomplished things in my life. It taught me to not be afraid to try new things because it was a new genre. I walked away from it going, oh, I feel really positive about where I'm at in my life, even though I've been through so much to get here. You know, I came on this way to meet you, obviously. The you is me, but also it's all these other people in my life too. Is there anything you want to add? I liked what you had to say about people reading this book if they want to write a book. I, I wasn't looking for catharsis, but I was looking to record a piece of my history. Like Alex Chi and I, like Alex is like a good friend and certainly like an influence for this book. And I interviewed so many, not interviewed, but I had talked to so many friends who've written memoirs about it and what advice they would have to give me. Really like kind of not everyone gets to do that. I felt really lucky that I could just like text someone and be like, give me, you know, the top thing you say at an event or something like that. It's like, I have a record of all these things now. And Alex, it was important for him to record his place, I think, in history. And I thought, I want to do that too. I want to do it while I can still remember who I was and what I was feeling. And so I wanted to learn from it because every book I want to learn when I sit down to write it, I'm, I come out different on the other side. I don't really believe in like closure or catharsis or anything like that. It's just a general sense of understanding and willingness to be surprised and surprise yourself. And I didn't write the book thinking this will inspire other people to want to write their own books, but I did write the book as a way to make other people feel less alone. And if what they get out of it is that they feel inspired to sit down and write a book, then that is a bonus to me. That is like a, a real gift. Jamie Attenberg, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Your memoir is I Came All This Way to Meet You, Writing Myself Home, and it's out now. It was such a pleasure to be here and it was, it was nice to see your face. 
Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.